First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate Cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Bernie Sanders doesn't get it. Hillary Clinton doesn't get it. Barack Obama, he really don't get it. The next time we see him, we might have to kill him. Donald Trump has a lot of work to do, telling us what he's going to do specifically. I continue to believe Mr. Trump will not be president. And the reason is because I have a lot of faith in the American people. This is Trumpcast, the show also known as Orange is the new hack. I'm Jacob Weisberg. And I'll be honest, I'm worried that this podcast might not be over in July, which is what I was hoping. Michael Kinsley, who taught me most of what I know about political journalism, used to have a saying about campaign coverage. The first rule is that the story has to change. A static field serves nobody's interest. There's a whole vocabulary of frontrunners and underdogs, momentum, beating expectations that we in the press use to keep the story evolving. If you were listening to the TV commentary last night after the New York primary, you might have noticed that last week's narrative, Trump can't get 1,237 delegates by the end of the primaries, is now out the window. And never mind that Trump today is only fractionally more likely to get to 1,237, even with his pickup of some extra delegates in New York. According to Politico, 1,237 is no longer the real magic number. Trump, who gets nothing if not media dynamics, has figured out how to support the inevitability narrative. He's pivoting, another one of those words we in the press like to use, to become a more acceptable Republican nominee. Last night, when he gave a victory speech, it wasn't Lion Ted this and Crooked Hillary that. It was Senator Cruz and Governor Kasich. As he recently told Greta Van Susteren of CNN, I will be changing very rapidly. 
I'm very capable of changing to anything I want to change to. I found that quote in a piece by Mark Leibovich of the New York Times Magazine. My conversation with him is coming up. But first, you may have heard Trump's speech at a campaign stop in Albany when he said this. But you are going to be so proud of your country because we're going to turn it around and we're going to start winning again. We're going to win so much. We're going to win at every level. We're going to win economically. We're going to win with the economy. We're going to win with military. We're going to win with health care and for our veterans. We're going to win with every single facet. We're going to win so much, you may even get tired of winning. And you'll say, please, please, it's too much winning. We can't take it anymore. Mr. President, it's too much. And I'll say, no, it isn't. We have to keep winning. We have to win more. We're going to win more. We're going to win so much. Good afternoon, Mrs. Harris. Sorry for the wait. What's the trouble today? Doctor, I am tired all the time. I feel like I can't get out of bed in the morning. Coffee doesn't work. I'm irritable. I'm snapping at my husband and my kids all the time over nothing. I can't get any work done. I I can barely keep my eyes open. Any dietary changes or medications that correlate with the onset of these symptoms? Not that I can think of. It really started last year, around summer of 2017. Just when the policies President Trump put into place in his first hundred days started to show their effects, I mean, the country just started winning. And at first it was great to be winning. I mean, everyone loves to win. I wasn't even aware that statehood was a competition, but there we were just winning at every level. We're winning with the economy. We're winning with the military. We're winning with health care and for our veterans. And we're just okay, winning okay, and winning. Okay, slow down. And- just take a breath. I just want to say to him, please, you know, it's too much winning, okay? I can't take it anymore. I feel like, like I, you know, I can't breathe. Okay, (laughs) okay, just try to relax. You know, we're seeing a lot of this. This is what we in the medical community are calling policy-induced victory fatigue. It's very common when an elected official takes power and is so effective so quickly. It can be a lot for the body to process. I mean, what about all these other countries? Don't they deserve to win a little? Is this a zero-sum game? Are we running up the score? Can we really keep it up with the winning? And he says we have to keep winning, and we're going to win, and we're going to win more. And Mrs. Harris, please, you're becoming unhinged. Why do we have to win so much. Can't we have a draw or something? Oh, Just why? Nurse, nurse, we have another one. She'll need to be restrained. Come with me, ma'am. Very sad. Put her with the rest of them. Wait, where am I going? Is there losing in there? I just want to lose something. Just one thing. I can't bear all the winning. I mean, come on. He's got to fire somebody. You're fired. You're fired. You're fired. You're fired. That was Winning, produced in partnership with Second City. It was written by Steve Waltine and performed by Julia Weiss. Chelsea Devantes, and Nicole Bishop. My guest today is Mark Leibovich of the New York Times Magazine. Mark, you saw this Trump pivot coming a mile away. How did you know this was going to happen? Well, first of all, he said it was going to happen. He kept saying, oh, I'm just going to pivot to becoming more presidential, and you're going to see this, and you're going to praise it. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, I think an odd you know, bit of the Trump genius is that he comes out and names the stupidity that we engage in with this process, you know, quite transparently. And I think we're seeing it now. He, he says a few quasi-gracious things, and um, everyone in the media remarks upon it and, and praises him and talks about how he's maturing, and, and oh my goodness, the operation has been professionalized. So uh, this is very, very, very dangerous for Hillary Clinton. 
I mean, no one else says I'm going to pivot. It's like the doctor saying, I'm about to give you a placebo. You know, I mean, is this his sort of <laughs> exactly what it br- is. brilliance at media manipulation? You know, he knows this is the stage of the campaign where this is what's required of him, and he has no qualms about just saying he's going to do it before he does it? Yeah. I mean, in a way, I mean, there's a, a very, very, very high comedy notion behind this. I mean, I don't think he gets it that way. I mean, I, I think... The the layers of meta have just sort of rolled in on themselves now where Trump believes that the message or he is such a product of the media and such a product of all of the tropes and, and, and so forth that he, he just sort of recites them as he's doing them. I mean, I remember George Bush 41 got in trouble or was mocked, um, I guess, in maybe 91, 92, around then, when he said, message, I care, which clearly <laughs> was written in a bullet point somewhere. And he was kind of almost, I think, subtly mocking the stupid sort of scriptedness of it. And um, I always had a warm spot for for Bush 41 sort of calling out the artifice of it in a weird way. But I I think he was he was mocked more than, than than praised for that. Yeah. Uh, the you know the new just in the last twenty four hours since the vote in New York, the new narrative seems to be oh Trump's inevitable again because of this big win. Has anything actually changed? I mean, he got a few more delegates in New York, but is his position vis-a-vis getting 1,237, is it really different now than it was yesterday? Not really. I mean, I I think this is fairly predictable. I mean, you would hope it's predictable. I mean, I think, you know, maybe the the lameness and inadequacy of, of the Ted Cruz candidacy to do anything outside of his sort of comfortable box of of smaller caucus states or you know maybe some midwestern western states you know this this underscores that a little bit but no i mean i I think that this is this is a rare point in the campaign where the narrative might be more important than it is would have been a couple of months ago because you know i do think that the smaller population of, of delegates possibly unbound delegates do respond to the more shallow kind of media driven notions like momentum more than actual vote, you know, bound delegates in, in Iowa might be. So, I mean, in that sense, it's significant. But, you know, as we've seen again and again, I mean, this can all change if he underperforms in, in the northeastern states next week um, and then maybe loses Indiana or one of the states the following week. But a week ago, everyone was saying, including me, I should add, if he doesn't get 1237, there's no way the Republicans will be crazy enough to give him the nomination. If he doesn't win it on right. the first ballot, he won't win it. Now the heading on the uh, Politico newsletter today is, well, 1237 isn't the real number. There's some real number that's short of 1237 that's, like, good enough. Exactly. And I think that that's probably, that might be a sign of a smarter Trump operation that, you know, can sort of spin the likes of Politico on a notion like that. And, and you know, again, this is a population that probably does read Politico and, you know, might possibly be swayed by that. And I think what Trump is doing now, and he has really for the last couple of weeks, is he's got sort of a two-pronged strategy. One is you know, to campaign and, you know, on the ground in New York, but the other is to kind of preemptively um, delegitimize the process by which he could lose. And, you know, to some degree, that's a guerrilla and sort of press-driven operation. And in that sense, you know, the likes of Politico and, and, you know, a lot of the chattering classes are playing, you know, into that to his benefit. He's been, until now, Mark, Trump's been kind of understaffed. I mean, he's had these kind of, you know, sort of lightweight people working for him. He's got a new Svengali, this guy, Paul Manafort, 
who has right. a long history of working for dictators, so he should know how to handle Trump. But do you, do you think some of this is coming from Manafort, uh, this pivot and the change in approach? Yeah, it might be. I mean, it, it's just it's it's just not that complicated, though. I mean, the idea that like you would need like this great brain trust to come in there and <laughs> and, and sort of impose this on him is just not. I mean, it's like a ten-year-old could figure this out. So, I, I mean, I I think where they are deficient or have been deficient is in a delegate tracking or sort of a a, a more mechanical preparation thing, which is I think you know really cost them delegates, and I, I don't think it's that hard to get up from zero to 50 in a couple of weeks on something like this. Whereas, you know, if he had no ground operation, which he doesn't, I mean, that's a bigger problem. You can't fix that overnight. But yeah, clearly there are more grown-ups in the room. And again, though, the, the notion of a pivot and like sort of tweaking your tone a little bit is, is not complicated. I mean, I'm sort of, it's amazing that it hasn't happened yet. But what's equally amazing to me and equally absurd is that anyone would fall for this. And and again, you have very, very respectable certified media people who are who are just so breathlessly impressed that, that Trump would be somewhat gracious and not say Lion Ted in his victory speech last night. I mean, to me, that's preposterous. I mean, I do think that the, the insulting of our intelligence that Trump really does, you know, perform so well is something that, that everyone um, willingly plays into, which I think is, you know, the political media at its absolute worst. When you wrote that piece about a month ago, Mark, which I would point out was called Look Out for the Trump Pivot, um, you also pointed out the a potential pitfall of this coming pivot, which is you wrote that if your campaign's a cult of personality, how can you modulate the personality and still have a cult? So is this the, is this the problem he's going to have now that, now that he's toning it down? I, I think maybe less so just because at this point, I mean, the cult is in place and it's not like the people who voted for Trump in all these primaries so far are going to sort of see this and say, oh, aha, I'm going to um, vote for Hillary in the general election. I mean, these these people are, are in the camp already. So, look, I mean, I, I think this might have been a bigger deal if, if we were much earlier in the process. But no, I mean, I think that at this point he needs... I mean, he's got a lot of room to grow, and, and the room to grow are in the people who you would like to think are not cultable, if, if that's a word. So you've spent some time with the, covering the man himself. You've been on his 757. And uh, how is covering Trump as a candidate different from covering everybody else, if it is? Well, why is this night different from all other nights? Yes, exactly. A pr- appropriate question for Passover. all other narcissists on this, <laughs> on this religious week for, for the Jews? Um you know, first of all, it's exhausting. It's exhilarating in a way because, I mean, the the fighting for access that, you know, we were always engaged in and the fighting for, you know, to get beyond the stupid talking points and, and again, the stupid tropes, that's not really a factor. He's just, he's right there in front of you. It, it's all, he knows it's a show and he's always putting on the show and, and you know, he's directing the show to some degree. Um, so, so you know, there is an initial like, wow, this is this is different. I like different and it's not as uh, lobotomizing as as it would be to to be around another candidate. You know, on the other side, it's just it's exhausting in that over time you realize that pretty much everything that comes out of his mouth is either a boast, a lie, or a threat. And um, when you are the target audience for all of that, it it's disconcerting. I mean, I remember I came back after a trip with him. And my wife said, you know, you've been, I've seen you come back from a lot of these trips over the years, but this is just different. You just have a different sort of color in your face. And, and I think she's right. I mean, it's not a good thing. You just feel like you've been through an experience that is not, um, 
I would say not human. <laughs> but it's interesting, uh, Laura, your wife's noticed it affected you. I mean, how did it affect you being around him? Were you, you were like, the, the veils had been ripped from your eyes, you were shattered. I mean, what, I mean, what impact I don't did know. it have I on mean, you? I mean, she said it was subtle, but she said I talked differently about the trip. I mean, I, I couldn't believe how shameless he was, for one. I mean, he was so unabashed about just sitting there staring at himself on TV and flipping around the station so that he could see himself instead of someone else on TV. And it was amazing. You get used to this humility or this ethic of humility, or frankly, an ethic of false humility among candidates that just does not exist for him. And it's also an ethic of of shame that, you know, normal, fairly well-adjusted people are capable of internalizing, but he doesn't have either. I mean, he he does not, you know, subscribe to any of the um, kind of graceful, dignified, quasi-sheepish behavior that you're used to seeing among politicians. So, I don't know. I mean, clearly, I mean, this is the kind of subtle thing that a spouse, I guess, can pick up over many years. And But no, I, I was sort of struck by the fact that she noticed it. I mean, it's interesting, you know, narcissism probably does preclude shame at some level, or at least as long as you don't lose. But um, you think Ted Cruz can ultimately be shamed in a way that, that Donald Trump can't? Ted Cruz has spoken about, and I think this is a, a rare moment in which Ted Cruz has kind of resonated, at least with me, over the months, which is, he said, it's difficult for him to raise his kids in this environment, or at least to explain to his kids some of the things that they're seeing on the debate stage or some of the things that you know, the Trump campaign is saying about him or, or his wife or their mom and so forth. I mean, I remember um, about a month and a half ago that moment in one of those debates where in every, they were just going co- completely nasty after Trump and the moderator, I forget who it was, just said, so are you all still going to support the nominee, whether it's Trump or not? And then Rubio, Kasich, and Cruz just all said, yeah, yeah, sure, we'll all do it. And that was a thoroughly demoralizing moment for me at least, and I remember writing about this, and, and the reason was, I mean, this is why Trump is winning, because, you know, you can, they can attack him and they can be completely appalled by his behavior, but at the end of the day, there's absolutely nothing more important than the orthodoxy of, of party loyalty and, and um, the pledge we made to the RNC. And, and again, that's the kind of nonsense that I think Trump is, is an antidote to. Mark, does, having spent time with Trump, does he have an off switch? I mean, does he have a personal side or a place he goes to when he's not performing? I, I remember actually at one point I asked him, we were in his actual apartment, and I said, so at what part of part, where in this apartment do you like take off all your clothes and like put on boxer shorts and then, you know, go watch TV and eat potato chips or whatever it is you do? And he said, oh, I don't know, maybe upstairs or something. But now after we were on a long flight to California from Dallas where he had just done a rally and he was just on for for several hours consecutively first at the rally and then through a bunch of TV interviews and then just you know trying to perform for me and we got to LA really late at night about maybe 11 o'clock LA time and and I was on East Coast time and I assume he was too and we got in the car and I was just I didn't want to hear him anymore and I assume you know he was just sick of he just needed to I needed to be by myself and we got to the airport and unfortunately I couldn't get to where the cabs were so he had a limousine and he said here well I'm going to Beverly Hills why don't you just like come in the limousine and, and I'll have the driver drop you off at your hotel so we're sitting there and he he looks at me and said okay I'm just I do not speak um, we're we're I'm done I need to just sort of sit here. And I was sort of very relieved that he actually was, you know, he wanted to decompress like a fairly normal person would. And on the entire 
drive. I mean, me and like the maybe six or seven staff people who were in the van didn't say a word. And he was, you know, looking at his phone the whole time. And I was looking at my phone, but no one was saying anything. And then after I got out of the car, I, I went onto my Twitter feed and it was clear that Trump had spent the entire or much of, of much of the, the trip uh, tweeting and tweeting, you know, what happened at the rally and tweeting how he had just arrived in L.A. And so I guess his mode of sort of decompression was to tweet in the dark after a long day. Mark, thanks for joining me on the show. Jacob, anytime. That's it for today's episode of Trumpcast. I want to thank everybody who's given us ratings and reviews on iTunes. It's a big help and it means a lot to us. Trumpcast is produced by Henry Malofsky and Jason DeLeon. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. I would like to extend my best wishes to all, even the haters and losers. Mitt Romney is a total joke, and everyone knows it. If Ted Cruz doesn't clean up his act, I have standing to sue him for not being a natural-born citizen. I beat Hillary! Mormons don't like liars! (laughs) Why does Megyn Kelly devote so much time on her show to me? Almost always negative. She is sick and the most overrated person on TV. Without me, her ratings would tank. Get a life, Megan. 